welcome back to Getting to the Top, where I interview transformational leaders about their leadership journey. Today, I have the absolute extreme honor to interview Marissa Drew. Marissa Drew is the Chief Sustainability Officer for Standard Chartered. Uh, she used to be Global Head of Sustainable, Sustainability Strategy Advisory and Finance Group for Credit Suisse. She's also been some, a part of some of the most pioneering deals that have happened, uh, the, the Belize Blue Bond as an example. She's been in the investment banking industry for over 30 years. She's worked for Merrill Lynch. She served on various advisory boards and in numerous leadership, sustainability, humanitarian, environmental, and civil society organizations. She's been recognized by the BBC as one of the most powerful women in Britain by Fortune Magazine as one of the 50 most powerful women in international business and by recognized by Financial News in its most influential women in finance for over a decade. And the thing that I, I remember most is, is meeting Marissa because I had read about her and I knew that I was going to meet her, but I was going to meet her at, in, in another place that I was traveling to. And I just happened to spot her in the airport to go in Antigua, where we were both headed, where I knew I was going to meet her. I was really, really excited about meeting her, but really nervous as well. When you read her, her profile and her bio, you're just like, I'm so intimidated by, by this woman. And she couldn't have been nicer. Like I said, hello, just like, you know, I'm gonna meet her anyway, let me just get it, you know, let's just do it. <laughs> and I said, hello, and she couldn't have been nicer and sweeter. And, and from that day to this, genuinely a complete human and it's it's it warms my heart and I'm just I'm just so grateful to know you Marissa I'm so thankful that you're spending this time with us because I know this is going to inspire someone on their journey oh what's an absolute pleasure and I must say it's a mutual admiration fest so <laughs> I think we found common points of intersection, not the least of which is shared birthdays across uh, two very important people in our lives. But anyway, um, no, it's a, an absolute pleasure to be here. Wonderful. So Marissa, tell us how it all started. How did you, what did you think you were going to be when you were growing up? <laughs> well, uh, when I look back over 35 years and I try to characterize myself, I, uh, I'm quite honest in some ways to say, um, as, as um, a kid, I was very much characterized by saying that I had a lot of energy and no direction <laughs> and a lot of impatience. So um, I, I initially thought that I wanted to do something to serve my country. So I'm the daughter of an Air Force pilot, so a Top Gun guy. And nice. um, I saw that, that was part of what drove him was um, a belief, you know, by being in the military, he was doing something to serve. And, um, and that, that sort of, I think, some, somehow informed my early thinking in my career. It wasn't going to be in the armed forces, despite him wanting me to probably fly planes. But I expressed that desire through thinking that I wanted to be in politics. And I was very fortunate enough uh, to get an internship while I was in high school with a first time congressman. I was living outside of Washington, DC. And when I was in that internship, it was very interesting to me because I saw a very idealistic person with huge energy and lots of passion, but you are in politics to serve your constituency. And sometimes um, those you serve have, may have different interests than perhaps what you do. And that was in, instrumental to me because I thought, huh, you know, you're here and that's an important job, 
but sometimes it takes you away from your own ideas of what needs to get done. And so I decided that maybe politics wasn't for me and maybe I could serve my country in a different way. And so that led me down the path of thinking maybe the diplomatic service somehow. And once mm -hmm. again, back to the internships, Thanks, thank goodness for those. So mm -hmm. I was able to intern for um, the great George Schultz, who was the secretary of state for the state department at the time. So very important person, uh, incredibly interesting, fascinating work in one sense, but what I saw is diplomacy, the wheels of diplomacy churn very slowly. It's a long, slow burn to get to the outcomes that you want. And a lot of patience is required. And I wasn't a very patient person. So I thought, well, maybe this one isn't for me. And it was this sort of process of trial and error with me dipping into things that I thought conceptually would be great. And then when I got into them, they didn't really uh, speak to who I am as a person. And so again, I, I don't think I was as deliberate as I sound when I tell you this with a lot of hindsight, um, but I did sort of dip in and dip out a lot. Um, and the next stop for me was a business internship. And, but that business internship was uh, for a corporation and it was very much a nine to five type of job. And when I got in again, full of energy and passion and wanting to change the world and all these things, and uh, that was a slow, slow moving company. So everybody arrived at nine and they had their trainers on at 459. They couldn't wait to get out the door. I thought there's just, something just isn't working for me here. So then I ended up um, going to my undergraduate university and on campus, uh, the, uh, the firms would come through to recruit. And I, that's when I stumbled onto finance because the bankers came in the room and they were full of gravitas and spoke with, with such reverence about what they did and talked about the dynamics of the markets and working crazy hours, but for all this work where they could see the fruits of their labor. I'm like, I don't even know what this is, but I need to get a piece of this. <laughs> so, um, so then I um, was fortunate enough to get an internship in the early days of investment banking. And in those days, you had a two-year defined internship and at the end of that, then they um, told you that if you wanted to come back to investment banking, you had to go get your MBA. So I did that, loved it, absolutely loved it, was so captivated by the markets, probably didn't sleep for very much of that period because you do pull all these crazy all-nighters, but it didn't seem like work to me. You know, it was exciting and you could see the when you did a big deal, it was on the front page of the paper the next day and all of this. Um, and um, but when it, my time was up and I needed to go back to school, if I wanted to come back, I didn't feel that I had enough life experience. So then I um, ended up working on the other side of investment banking, where often you're serving a certain type of client. And at the time, we were serving private equity firms, early, early days of PE. And I went to work for a private equity firm. And while that seemed very provocative, because those people who were making me stay up all night, <laughs> I was going to be <laughs> one of them. Um, and I and I got an internship again at a, at a, at a PE firm, but again these these preconceived notions that one has, I thought that that was the holy grail until I got into it. And what I realized as a junior person in a what was then more akin to a startup these days these are huge firms, but uh, I was doing everything, and I genuinely mean this, everything from doing deals to fixing the copy machine because that's what you do in an early stage startup. Yeah. And the other thing that was really informative for me is that we were evaluating many, many opportunities of companies to buy, but the actual number that we would purchase after enormous mm. amounts of analyzing was very low. So I call it the hit ratio. It was very low relative to the work that was put in. And mm. I looked back in banking and I was doing five deals at a time and boom, 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 boom. And I thought, huh, 
Well, that's interesting. Um, you know, this idea of PE maybe isn't actually so great as a junior person, <laughs> number one, because you're fixing the coffee machine, but number two, um, the, the amount of deal flow that I was actually seeing that consummated was, was relatively low. So then the next step in the journey was somebody approached me because when one stands around, you know, the coffee machine in your, uh, in your bank, you always talk about what if, and the what if at that point was maybe someday I'll be an entrepreneur, I'll run my own show, and then I get to dictate the terms and all of this. And um, somebody approached me at the end of my time in PE, uh, willing to back me with capital if I'd start a business, if I would run wow. this startup idea. And I always thought I was going to be an entrepreneur maybe later in life, not when I was in my 20s. But uh, when opportunity presents itself, you don't want to say no, because I was afraid I would always look back and say, what if? So I said, why not? Let's jump in. So I started up a business and uh, it will make people smile on this call probably because back then everybody believed that the way to get ahead was computers because it was the early days of having PCs in homes and schools. So computer literacy was key. So we started learning centers to teach people how to deal with computers, which at the time were very expensive machines. And most people were afraid if they touched it the wrong way, it would break and all these kinds <laughs> of things. Um, and, and so computer literacy is really key. So it ended up being a reasonably successful business. So our centers were bursting at the seams and we were teaching everybody from adults to believe it or not, two-year-olds who were very facile with the computers, unlike their parents, you know, natural <laughs> affinity for the mouse and all yeah. that. Um, yeah. But what was fascinating to me again on this idea uh, that I had in my head, preconceived notion that maybe big was bad and lumbering and slow and hierarchical and small was good and startup was even better. Um, running a company for me was incredibly stressful and yeah. I didn't sleep for two and a half years. And the amount of stress that I wore in these life or death decisions every day that you're making for your company, whether you, those decisions mean whether you're going to meet payroll and all and this type of thing, I found that as very oppressive stress and I didn't yeah. like it. I didn't actually enjoy it. And I was also intellectually bored once I got it up and running because it was then what I can open another center and another center, but there, there wasn't anything yeah. feeding my brain. So I decided being an entrepreneur wasn't all that fun. And I then sold the company and then went to business school. And in business school, I said, okay, it's time to settle down, time to figure out what you really <laughs> want to do. And all of that, I'd say opacity or lack of clarity on what I wanted to do I spent that time during business school, in addition to my studies, thinking really hard about all those life experiences. What are the things that I really enjoyed? What are the things that I didn't like? Uh, what's the difference between good stress and bad stress? And I came mm. out the other side and I knew that I wanted to go back to banking. I wanted to be in a big firm with lots of resources so that I did have somebody who can uh, do my IT and fix the copy machine. But more <laughs> importantly, that I was back into the markets where that dynamic go-go uh, pace was a good kind of stress for me, uh, the kind of stress that gives you adrenaline, propels you forward rather than weighing on your shoulders. And yeah. I was trying to ask myself, why was I captivated by entrepreneurs? Why did I want to be one? I like the risk taking they do. I like the way they think. I just didn't want to do it myself. So the right. next best thing, of course, is to bank the entrepreneurs. And that's how I found my spot within banking. So I was very deliberate when I came out of business school. I wanted to be in banking. I wanted to work in the space of the young, fast-growing companies where I would be the capital provider to them, that very important partner to them, giving that, that so very critical lifeblood of capital. And that's really when I came out the other side, that's what I started doing, never looked back. I mean, that was it for me and found my passion 
And while other things have come along the way, we could talk about the sustainability piece of the journey. At my heart, I find myself thinking in my frame of reference is, you know, the banker to the earlier stage high growth disruptors or, you know, uh, companies that are going to change industries. And it's been an amazing journey. So that that is the uh, <laughs> the history and gallop through a, a very interesting life path for me. No, I love it. I love it. There's so much, so much, so much, so much there to learn. You know, and, and I had the same experience. I had done my own thing for a while and, and there's the stress and lack of sleep, you know, because because you, your boss is, is in your head at night. And so it, it, you're not able to go to sleep. So, you know, I, I absolutely get it. But I also feel like you went through several different potential careers through that internship process where you were testing, listen, does this work for me? It doesn't work. Does yeah. that work for me? It doesn't work. There's a tweak required here. I, I like this part of it, but not this piece. And that's how you, you sort of, you, you created this, this definition of what you wanted to do through trial and error. And, and sometimes we feel like, you know, they're, they're fatal errors that we're creating. I also love that you got some experience before going to business school, because I, I've always felt that the, the business school experience is so much richer after yeah. having some, some engagement. Did you find that as well? hundred percent. You know, if I'm honest, I say when I was an undergraduate, I didn't know what to learn and what not to learn. And what I mean yeah. by that is, you know, everything is coming at you and you don't have enough experience to take in the things that are really going to add to you or your, your experience or your knowledge base versus the things that you have to do, you know, in terms of prioritization. And then when you, if you've been out in the business world for a few years and you come back to the learning environment, first of all, it's such a privilege, right? You mm -hmm. say, wow, I get space to actually learn, like really learn and not just kind of go at it because I want to get out of the house and, you know, have my freedom, which most people do it, you know, in the first round in, in undergrad. And, um, and so then the, the journey was all much more richer for that. It, it, so I was quite deliberate about the space that I wanted to participate in when I went back to business school and how I wanted to show up in school and all that. But also it was uh, a moment where I could step back and reflect and try to be pretty honest with myself. Because, you know, I think when you're young, people project things on you, whether it's your parents or friends or mentors, yeah. or whatever. And they say to you, you should be this or that, or you'd make a yeah. good something, something, or I want to see you take on the family legacy. And you tend to absorb that and wear it and think that that's the right path. Um, but until you try that sometimes, and maybe you get lucky, but I suspect most of us, you know, find that that is somebody else's vision for us rather than our own. But it's also sometimes hard to be honest about that. You know, what am yeah. I not great? And what do I love? And sometimes following your path of what you love is an un, not a very well-trodden path. In my family, you know, nobody came from business. Nobody came from finance. So it wasn't even our frame of reference. Didn't know how to talk right. about it. And yet I found that thing and it was just, it was magical for me. So yeah. I would encourage anybody, you know, experimenting to keep, keep following those things that really get you excited because eventually that leads to hopefully that clarity and by the way, the other thing that I do think we are really hard on ourselves, we feel like that first decision yeah. out of school, that is going to define your path for life. And the reality is life is a twisty, turning journey. And what you start out doing isn't what you'll end up doing. And it's okay. <laughs> it's okay to get right. it wrong. You know? yes. As long as you learn from it the next time, you know, it's okay. And it's okay not to know absolutely, you know, what you believe your end point to be. And it's okay to know what it is too. 
but it, or, or to think you know what it is because I think life will show you maybe not so much but <laughs> but I also I, I love the fact that you you know you tried stuff on and and um, I think you you learned a lot from those experiences when you're you know you're in a startup so you're having to do everything and you're getting that 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 360 view of what does it take to run a company, to operate a business, to support an entrepreneur. And all of that is probably feeding into the way that you're able to look at things now. For sure. For sure. And, and, you know, back to what people project on you or what, what society thinks, you know, at the time that I was um, starting that business up, everybody thought the greatest job ever was to be an entrepreneur to you know run a startup yeah. and you and in a funny way you again absorb that and you think well why don't I like this <laughs> you know yeah. am, am I the only one that thinks that this is you know a pretty rough ride um <laughs> but you have to let some of that go because I, I definitely say you know what's right for me isn't going to be right for the next person the next person but equally it's that um that knowledge that you gain, even when you're doing something that isn't great for you, what do you pick up and what do you learn about yourself? But also for me, having been an entrepreneur, it made me for sure an infinitely better banker to serve the entrepreneurs because I sat in their shoes. And it was quite interesting because I had a wonderful mentor and the person who hired me after I sold my business and I came back to investment banking. I did say to him at the time when we were recruiting, you know, I know I'm not your typical banker because back in the day, the typical banker would have been an analyst for two years, gone to business school dutifully, like, like the, that was the path, and then come, came back to investment banking and showed how much they always wanted to be an investment banker, and that was a straightforward path. And yet, I arguably, when I came yeah. back to banking, I was a good four years behind my peer group because they had all done the traditional wow. path. But um, the person who hired me said... Um, I actually think, um, you know, despite you think you're being behind, I can feel that you feel that you're behind because your peer <laughs> analysts are, you know, now VPs and you're coming in as an associate. I can tell you that that, that life experience will make you so much bit more valuable to the clients that you're serving because we are in the client service business and banking. And it's 100% true. And the funny thing is, when I look back now, I thought I was so far behind, but yet... Yeah who's left, you know, I'm still left in the business and they were long gone, you know, long, you know, very, very early on. And so maybe there's something there that also we have to give ourselves a little bit of relief, like benchmarking yourself to your peers all the time is probably not the healthiest. It's probably not the right way to look at things. Absolutely. And, you know, you see that all the time, young women who are saying, listen, I'm so behind and I'm, you know, it's too late and, and too late. Like, yeah. 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 But it, it's, it's your journey. It's nobody else's journey. So you've got to figure out there are reasons that you had the, the meandering turns that, that you did and it made you better suited for what you're doing. But I also like, you know, everybody's talking about, oh, you know, the, the opportunity for women is to become entrepreneurs. And my fear with that is that we, we have such a lack of diversity at the, at the leadership level of these major organizations like standard, you know, like, like the one that you are leading sustainability for. We need to ensure that while we, we are getting women and, and diverse candidates in entrepreneurship, that we are also making sure that we're bringing that leadership to, you know, to, to the big organizations because they are already running how we do things. Mm -hmm. and yeah. making really important decisions. 
And what, what my big um, mistake was or, or um, misunderstanding was, no, my, my belief was when you're an entrepreneur, you control your destiny and, and, and it's true to a degree. Uh, but interestingly, you know, the platform that you have at the helm of a large company is massive and the impact that you can make is massive. So if you can have a long and fruitful career coming up a corporate ladder in a big company, you know, when you get to a senior level, boy, is that a great place to, to really do something that that's big, you know, and it isn't yeah. always just the startup that becomes, you know, the new thing. And of course, we know what the traditional ratio of, of failed startups is. So it's a hard road, you know, um, yeah. and, you know, I don't, I don't think any career road is necessarily easy, but um, <laughs> I think sometimes people think like, you know, it's the career, the corporate thing, A, I'm not going to be able to make an impact, but B, you know, isn't it so much faster and easier to be an entrepreneur? I'm like, mm, I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> no, no, no. And all you see are unicorns and you don't see all of the, yeah. the, the ones that, that don't quite make it. But, you know, you mentioned a mentor. So tell me, mm -hmm. how did that, what was that mentorship like? Mm. Well, I think in mentoring and champions and the different phrases that we use that do slightly mean different things. Um, I, I have had people who have taken interest in me along the way, whatever it is that they saw in me at the time and have uh, used in some cases, and that's what we call champions, use their personal mm -hmm. capital to, to promote me or to take a chance on me for a role or whatever. Um, that is very, very valuable. And I tend to think um, oftentimes in large companies, uh, we create matching and we say someone should mentor someone else. I think my most fruit fruitful uh, relationships have come organically. It is because mm. perhaps I performed for somebody or I helped them do something that gave them leverage or whatever the circumstance was. And then there was a natural uh, communication or connection point where mm -hmm. it was a two-way street in a way. And, um, mm. and those have formed deep, deep bonds rather than something that is uh, engineered. And those can certainly work. But uh, to me, the most fruitful ones in my career have been the ones where we formed an organic relationship and there was a basis for why um, that person chose to mentor me or give me advice. And But I also was very, very mindful of nurturing those relationships and trying to the best of my ability to make it a two-way street. You know, how can I help you? What can I do in my maybe limited capacity? And, um, and those have served me very, very well. And it's everything from uh, helping to frame the work that I was doing in a light that would be absorbed by others. It was taking the risk on me for a promotion. It was standing and championing me at a promotions committee, perhaps. Uh, putting me in front of opportunities that I otherwise wouldn't get. You know, any any one of those were uh, examples of where a mentor has stepped in and just those little nudges, you know, that yeah. uh, that helped, particularly in a large, complex organization. You need those those people who are, uh, who are there sort of standing behind you a little bit. But that's the thing. I think so many people don't think about the nurturing of those relationships. You know, people think about uh, mentoring as, okay, I show up and, and I'm this vessel, fill me, versus, yeah. you know, there is something that I can do and, and, and feed this relationship as well. And, and also to, to, you know, how you look at the work that you're doing and, and how that feeds into this relationship. Where did that concept start for you? Because I, I find so many mentees don't think about it in that way. And it, it serves to sort of unravel the relationship because after a while, and it doesn't mean that you absolutely have to give back to the relationship, 
but it's always helpful when you do because then you are in service of this of this you know of this exchange yeah is exchange is the right word it's a is a, i say the two-way street um it's a good question interestingly i've never thought about it that way but i uh, but i guess i thought about it in the context of um i was always I, I have felt very privileged to be in financial services and have had the career that I've had. So there's certainly been a bias toward how can I give back to those who come behind. And for me, it was always oriented to women in financial services because, um, you know, in my day, it was sort of the, the only one around, you know, they didn't know what to do with me. Um, uh, there were very few women on Wall Street, particularly in the senior capacity back then. So I think that's been my orientation. But then when I went about it, like how do I mentor or how do I bring someone up? Uh, oftentimes in a large company, it's a program. And then I thought, well, you know, why are these fizzling out? Why are they not working? Because it, it, with all the best intentions, we create these matches and then something wouldn't happen. And then I, I think I took that away and thought, well, why have the ones worked for me that they have? And it was genuinely because there was a basis for that connection for whatever reason, but usually it was in the context of working together and finding some sort of a sink. And that person had seen my work and said, ah, she's got something that, you know, I'm, I'm prepared to, to, uh, to champion. Yeah. So how do you get noticed? Like, uh, you know, what were you doing specifically or, uh, yeah. Mm. Well, early, early in the career. I mean, I think these are the different things at different stages. Um, but if I were to try to generalize, I would say, try to do your best to make yourself indispensable. Um, you know, in the very early days, you know, I say, be a sponge, absorb as much as you can, ask all the questions. I mean, a lot of these, you know, people are, are it's a well-trodden path. You say, you know, ask all the questions when no one expects anything of you um, yeah. because no one expects anything of you. And there is no <laughs> dumb question. However, right. you know, you're quickly, what you want to do is figure out what's important to the person above you. It's usually one level above you, not five levels above you. What's important to them and what can you do to help them? Because if you're doing that, you're creating already that bond almost that we're talking about. And you also begin to make yourself indispensable um, because then yeah. someone begins to rely on you. First, you do something that's helpful. And then they said, gee, I'll take a little bit more of that. And then you do something more helpful and then you become indispensable. Uh, I think that's yeah. one thing. And when I say be a sponge, it is learn what's, you know, try your best to learn what's important to that business and that role. Equally try to learn what is important to the role right above you. Um, yeah. Because you begin to exercise your muscle on practicing those skills of that next job up. Then it's so easy for the person above you when promotion con time comes to not say, gee, you know, she's really good in this role, but not sure if she can do the role above. It's it's a yeah. shoe in because it's like, well, she's been doing that role forever. I mean, she, you know, it's such an easy promotion. And again, yeah. it's because you're also probably taking something off of that person's plate that helps them, which again, wants that, you know, makes them want to help you. I've also been, you know, I, I've observed in the past a maybe more tactical way to create a, a mentoring relationship is ask for that support um, mm -hmm. to, to go to a boss and say, look, I'm really keen on getting promoted or this next role or whatever yeah. it is that you aspire to. Can you help me um, pursue that? Can we work together on that? So now they're vested in your success because you've yeah. asked and as long as they've accepted, they will seek ways to try to deliver on that that mutual shared objective. But I think a lot of times people just sit and think, well, this person's my mentor, my champion. It's just going to come at me <laughs> that they can somehow yeah, yeah, yeah. what you want. And, yeah. and they'll just 
jump in. And I don't think that's really always the case. And it's not typically human nature, but you want to create that, that reason for someone to be vested in your success. Absolutely. And, and so speak up, speak up and, and, and state your intention so people know um, how they, they have an opportunity to use you and, and where opportunities crop up that they have the chance, well, listen, she's interested in this, but you're also asking all of the questions and, and you're making yourself indispensable. So again, well, definitely, um, this is the person that I would consider. Such a great gem. So, so what, what would you say has been the key to your success? Has it been that? Has it been, you know, making yourself indispensable, you know, looking at the next level and, and creating those opportunities? How are you, how are you sort of fostering these relationships? <laughs> Well, the first thing was genuinely, and it sounds trite, but I really, really mean this. And it's, and it's been absolutely, I'd say the primary key to my success is I did find that passion. Now I didn't stumble into it, as, as we said, you know, it was, a, it was a long rambling journey to find the passion, but the minute I did, what happened? You know, I went from being, you know, a little bit lost and I don't know what I want to do and this isn't right for me. And I it's not quite, the suit's not fitting, you know? The minute yeah. I found that thing through that deliberate exercise that I went through, it was like the suit fit perfectly. I loved yeah. it. The energy was there. I was, you know, I say the mark of finding your passion is that when you wish that you had 24 more hours in the day or you could clone yourself five mm -hmm. times over. And this has been going on for me for 35 years. It hasn't dissipated. And, and therefore, um, to me, you know, again, I don't want to, I don't want to overstate the case. It's not perfect all the time. I don't walk in every yeah. single day and say it's fabulous and wonderful. You have your hard days or hard months or hard somethings, but fundamentally I've loved what I've done. I, my, my brain is fed. I'm passionate about it. And I think that comes through. So first yeah. of all, when someone's engaging, they see that I'm engaged, you know, and yeah. we all know people that we worked with or worked for or whatever, who are half in they're not very inspirational yeah. and you don't tend to gravitate to them because you feel like they're box checking or they can't wait to get out the door at 459. You know, yeah. that's not an inspirational relationship, whether it's boss to subordinate or subordinate to boss. Right. And so I think they probably could see that I was deeply interested in the subject matter that I cared. And then of course I'm an all in person. So that's sort of how yeah. I'm wired. So it was always, what can I do to do more, to say yes, to take on more, to deliver, and um, there's my little phrase for that one is, um, especially in the early stage of your career, once you ask all those, those first dumb questions, you know, and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and you make all those mistakes, you know, you begin very quickly, hopefully, to sort of get on top of that foreign um, role when, you know, all the language is different, you don't know what you're doing, and you feel like you're lost, um, you know, you start to begin to get on top of it, then you see where you can dip in and add value. And when you yeah. really go over to the top to add value, then what happens? I call it the rock star persona. And I say, you know, in the hallways, what you want those senior people to be doing is saying, hey, boy, did you see what she did on that last project? Boy, is she a rock star? And the mm. rock star chatter starts to proliferate through the hallway. And in banking, you have staffers and you have different mm -hmm. senior people where you'll work a project and then the next one and the next one. You want all the MDs to say, boy, I heard she's a rock star. And you know, you yeah. may have only done one really brilliant project, but the persona <laughs> is you're a rock star. And then that yeah. becomes a self-perpetuating thing. And you know, that's that's the position you want to be in so that everybody wants to use you. And when you build that kind of a foundation early on, that carries you so far. So I yeah. would say you know, that little snippet pearl of wisdom would be, you know, try to create your rock star persona 
persona within you know your organization and uh and then everybody wants to engage with you and, uh, and it has to come authentically and genuinely right if you're yeah. miserable you're sort of making it up or faking it that'll be found out but i think so that first step find the passion and then lean in all the way love it love it love it i think that's great advice and i was reading a book recently where it was talking about um rock stars and superstars and so it was referring to in that book that the rock stars are the people who are steady, who, who want to stay in their role and aren't necessarily in this period in their life. You know, whether they have a sick parent or something else, mm. you know, they, 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 they don't, they're not looking to move up the ladder. And mm. to sort of figure out whether you are in a rock star or a superstar period where you're shooting, you're going to the next thing, or you're in a very steady period. But, but don't get don't get stuck. Don't, don't feel like you mm. have to stay as a rock star versus a superstar, mm. you know, that, that there will be periods of both where you are, you know, you're taking the leap or you're, you're, you're settling in and you take another leap and then you can settle in again if you need to, but, but you can keep sort of moving through phases in your career. Mm. That's interesting. I, I might've, we might be interchanging words, rock star and superstar for purposes of what I was talking about, about your early yeah. stage career. But I think that's fair. First of all, no career is linear. Nothing is a straight yeah. line up. It isn't. You will yeah. have setbacks. Things yeah. will go wrong. You'll have a boss that you hate. Something will go wrong in your company. You'll go in a down <laughs> cycle. There'll be a million and one things like that. Um, and you have to uh, certainly also know when you'll find your moments. And some of those yeah. moments are self-created, uh, meaning like you say, you might have a period of time where you need to have a different kind of balance in your life between how much you're all in at work versus curating other things in your life um, and other times, frankly, you want to jump and then digest, right? It's, yeah. you can't always leap to something that is, you know, the shooting for the stars because you actually do need to, once you get into a stretch assignment, you need to prove that you can handle it. And I think yeah. that's sort of the digestion period. It's almost like a stair step, you know, go to that next level and then yeah. you settle in. And then you look around and say, okay, my learning curve is plateaued. I think about it in those terms, you know, it's like the steep learning curve and it plateaus. And when it plateaus, you can either say, you know, I'm pretty happy right now. It's kind of comfortable. I want to just keep clicking along. That's okay. Uh, sometimes though, you know, I would say you don't want to get so complacent that that becomes your forever if you're ambitious yeah. and you know, not yeah. everybody is, by the way, but I've always been that person that's always um, seeking the intellectual stimulation so once yeah. things plateau for me, then I'm like, then what? Um, yeah. And then you start to, to reach if that's how, how you want to pursue your, your career path. But then you've got to make that known. And you've yeah. got to uh, typically open up your aperture for other opportunities that typically wouldn't be maybe linear. And then mm -hmm. something, you know, you do a little bit make your own luck. There's an element of that. Of course, you've got to yeah. luck. Life is luck. But the more irons you put in the fire, the more luck you create for yourself. And then you take strategic decisions and calculated risks about where you leap. And I genuinely believe in a couple of times where I've taken what I call big risks, right? I, yeah. I left an incredibly comfortable position to do something very uncertain or taken on a client patch to cover that nobody else wanted to cover. You know, I've done it in a way where I thought, well, am I jumping off a cliff with literally no, uh, no support network, <laughs> there's no net? Or... Am I jumping really far out into the unknown, but the downside is somewhat limited. That's how I've always looked at it. And why would the downside be limited? In my case, as a baby banker, I call myself, uh, oftentimes, you know, uh, the senior bankers want to cover, you know, in my case, it was the big cap companies. So yeah. this is a hundred million years ago, but back in the day, the senior guys 
all wanted to cover AT&T and IBM. You know, these were the huge, big, important right. companies. Nobody wanted yeah. to cover startup mobile telephony or early stage cable companies. And I said, I'll do it. And the reason I said, I'll do it is because, yes, it was a risk for me to go down that path and not try to emulate the big cap um, progression. But at the same time, I looked at this and I saw, well, boy, is this a service I would want to use? I mean, if we could really untether and never have ourselves tied to a telephone, wouldn't that be really cool? And I went down that path and it was risky and nobody else wanted to cover it. So I said, I'll do it. And that became my USP, the media and telecom banker, the bankers to the industry that became the disruptor. And look at us now, right? We're all untethered. Not that I could have seen that it would take off that way, but sometimes you take those risks and those become, you know, the things that make you successful. Oh my gosh. What a great, what a great idea. Like, you know, would I use that and, and have that be, you know, wouldn't that be great? And, and then but I also like the fact that you took the risk and not necessarily just because you thought, okay, well, it's a safe enough risk. You know what I mean? Because you're going to, you're going to have, have failures in your career. Sure. You're going to make the wrong mistake. And you, you know, it's, it's never sort of a fatal flaw. Just learn what you learn from that and then rebound and, and onto the next thing. Yeah, you can have catastrophic failures. I mean, you can do some really bad, you know, like, you know, we all do, you know, somewhere in your career, there's probably something that still 30 years later makes you cringe and go, oh, that was this dumb thing. We make mistakes, we're human. Uh, that yeah. will happen, or you will get passed over for a promotion or something bad that really kind of rocks your foundation will happen. Um, sometimes that is a moment for you to take stock and say, maybe it's time to do something different or go somewhere else. Yeah. Those often are big risks and they're born out of a, a tough situation. There are other yeah. ones that are more opportunistic, like me saying, I'll pursue the cable um, and telecom space. But there's another little catchphrase. I have lots of catchphrases in my head. You know, one of them is <laughs> life is half as much what you don't want to do as it is what you do want to do. Learning, you know, what you don't want to do as much as you do. The other catchphrase is uh, go where the growth is. So in my yeah. case, I looked at that and I thought, you know, you had these big mature industries, which are sort of flatlining. And then you had these young disruptors that were high, high, hyper growth, needed tons of money, needed a, a lot of banking capital. Thought, well, you know, OK, I'm taking a big risk. The industry may blow up and fail, but I'm going to learn something and I'm going to be a necessary component to their success. If they're successful, maybe that's a good place to take that sort of a, a deliberate risk. Oh, I love it. I love it. And I'll go where the growth is and and figure out what you don't want to do as much as you figure out what you want to do. And what would you say is sort of the last great piece of advice that we can walk away with today? <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> How many hours do you have, Dr. Z? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I guess it's, yeah, it's the, it's the calculated risk. It's the, um, you know, it's the, it is the find your passion, as trite as that sounds. Um, and I, I think the other thing is, um, reminding yourself constantly that life isn't a linear path and do little check-ins with yourself. So my other yeah. uh, exercise that I do is about every six months, I think of my life mm. as scales, as, as two scales, and maybe that's because I'm a Libra, but um, <laughs> I think about, you know, are they in balance? And I mean, work-wise, not life, work-life balance-wise, yeah. but am I getting out of my job as much as I'm putting into it and that not yeah. hours wise, but emotional energy and all of that. If those are relatively in balance, meaning that I'm getting a lot out of, I'm self-actualized, I'm happy, keep going, mm -hmm. right? There's no reason yeah. to do anything. If those were wildly out of balance, life's too short to really 
really in a six month period be pretty miserable. And that's probably the time to say time to go, you know, do something else, um, whether that's a career pivot or a different location or a different company or something. And um, every time I've done that check-in on those rare occasions where it's been out of balance, not because I want to do a different career, but the situation was out of balance for an extended period of time. And I felt that there was not much I could do to change the equation. It wasn't going to get better. It was a time I said, you know, let's take some stock. And yeah. then I took those big risks and that served me really, really well along the way. Love it. And I've gotten some really, really great advice from this phenomenal woman. And she said, create, proactively create outside interests because that's how you connect with people. And that's that true. wonderful woman was Marissa Drew. <laughs> <laughs> uh, outside interests and, and good friendships because um, yes. amazing things we've done together. And, you know, that yeah. fateful conversation in an airport led to us talking about how do we work together on a sustainability agenda that, yeah. you know, became part of my world later on much more proactively. And what did that lead to a, a conversation about doing something pretty big for the Caribbean on a debt restructuring that has yeah. become a thing? <laughs> it yes, was a sparkle yes, in our yes, eye yes. at the time, but it became a thing. And you were an amazing Absolutely. and willing collaborator. Wonderful. Thank you so much for this conversation. I I loved it. And still, every time I talk to you, I learn something new, which I absolutely adore. And I I can't believe that you make time for me. And I appreciate it every single time. Thank you for being so kind and having such a huge heart and being so fun to be with. I really appreciate it. Thank, well, thank you. you for doing this. All righty. And you. thank you for, for staying with us through this conversation. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and let us know what, what kinds of things do you want to know? from these transformational leaders about their journey. Help us curate some questions. And thank you so much for being with us today. Bye.